take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and our text this morning will be verses 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. There are many mysteries of the Christian faith, the nature of God himself, God's providential ruling and our decision-making. These are things that are beyond us that can't just be explained. And one of the great mysteries of the faith is why did God become man? Why did the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one that is, we are told, is the Alpha and the Omega, the one without beginning, the one without end, the unchanging, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, why did he become man? Hebrews, in many ways, was a letter written to answer this question. And the last several weeks, we have been dealing with the answers that we get from God's Word. We saw that he came to claim dominion and give that to man. That he came to make his chosen ones holy. And that he did this through suffering and death, which again is a perplexing question. Why did he become man? Simply for this reason, God cannot suffer nor die. God cannot take sin upon himself. God cannot become sin. But God become man is able to suffer, able to die, and able to become sin, though knowing no sin. In other words, for us to be able to have salvation, Christ came to represent man and accomplish salvation for man. In salvation, what else is it that we receive? That Christ accomplishes through suffering and death. This morning, we're told two more things that he accomplishes by becoming man and suffering and dying in our place. And so we will notice this morning two things that, that stand out for us in answering the question why God became man so that he might suffer, so that he might die. And what does he accomplish in that? We see this morning two simple things. He destroys the devil and he destroys the fear of death. So what does Christ accomplish in his humanity through suffering and through death, he destroys the devil and he destroys the fear of death. Let us hear the word of God. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. We see in verse 14 very clearly that through Jesus' suffering, through his death, he destroys the one who has power over death. Jesus destroys the devil. You'll notice the first two words, since, therefore... Meaning this is that this passage is explaining something to us. It's telling us something about why Jesus suffered, why Jesus experienced death, why Jesus became man. 
And it begins by telling us that he took on flesh for a purpose, to accomplish something. Now, why does he take on flesh? Because we're told he takes on flesh. Why does he take on flesh? Why did he become man? What are the reasons that the eternally begotten Son of God would take on flesh and blood? The answer given in the text is astonishing to us. God became man because we are flesh and blood. God condescended to something that he was not for something that we are. That's the beauty of salvation. We are human. We are made of this flesh and blood. And so, God, in the second person of the Trinity, the Son, became human for us. A people in rebellion. A people that are sinful. A people that would just reject God every chance we could. It's amazing when you think about this because chapter 1 of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is God eternally, that He was begotten of the Father, that He was unchangeable, and you see all the attributes of deity in chapter 1 are applied to the Son, and chapter 2 then focuses in on His humanity and what He accomplished in His humanity. And so it's almost a shocking statement that you have all of the attributes of God applied to the Son, and then we see that He took on flesh like you and I. And what did this death accomplish? What did this flesh accomplish? Well, we see in verse 9, it says that He was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honoring Because of suffering of death, he was crowned with glory, that he might taste death for everyone. And then in verse 10, we're told that he brings, he is the founder of salvation. Verse 11, that he sanctifies. He is the one who brings people to God as holy. He brings salvation. And for whom did he accomplish this for? We're told that he does this for the sons of glory. But in verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children. Who are the children? This is bringing up that theme that just continues to come up and we will zero in on next week. And that is this theme of adoption. That this work is done on behalf of of a set group of people. It's done on behalf of a people that the Father has given to the Son. He does this for the children, since therefore the children, it's those that are the sons of glory. It's those that Jesus sanctifies. It's those that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. It's those in whom the Father says, Behold, I and the children God has given me. He takes on flesh and blood for the children. And the children are defined by those that the Father has given to the Son. Jesus takes on human nature in its fullness. Jesus becomes man in all that is involved with being man for the children. 
that the Father has given him. What is that nature of his humanity? Well, we're told here it's flesh and blood. And you have to sit on that for a second and run that through what we already know of Jesus. All things have been given to him. He is ruler. He is all-powerful. His power cannot be measured. But we're told the one in whom there is all power, the one who cannot change, he takes on flesh and blood. And what does that communicate? That means it's what's common to us. And what do we experience in this flesh and blood? We experience weakness. We experience changeableness. We experience the effects of sin. We have a degenerating body. John Owen says he would be like unto us that we might be, might make us unto himself. He would take our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He would join himself unto us and become one flesh with us that we might be joined unto him and become one spirit with him. He takes on all of the things that describe the weaknesses and the changeableness and the pain that we experience in this life. He takes all of those things upon himself so that he can make us one with him who is eternal. He takes on flesh and blood and all that is involved with flesh and blood so that we might experience eternal life. The very thing that our flesh and blood cannot comprehend. He takes on flesh and blood. It says, likewise, he partook of the same things. And what does that mean? That he himself likewise partook of the same things. It's a specific point about his humanity. Jesus' taking on flesh and blood came through natural means. What does that mean? He was born. God could have, I guess, just given Jesus and made him and brought him here, but then he would not be like us. In fact, the Bible makes a big point about this in Romans chapter 1, in verse 3. It says this concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So his humanity then was from who? Mary. He took on actual flesh and he came about through birth just like every single one of us experience entrance into this world. He came and took on flesh and blood. Yes, it was supernatural. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. But he was from the line of Mary because he was from the line of David. So how did he take on flesh and blood? God didn't just zoom Jesus down here and give him flesh and blood and make that happen. He brought him about through the womb of Mary. When we talk about the real humanity and the true humanity of Christ, we have to understand that he was from Mary. 
when he took partook of flesh and blood, he did it through the same uh, way that we do in the supernatural way that the Holy Spirit describes, but of the same flesh. It's amazing when you think of what it says here in Hebrews. It's so much like what we read in John, where we read in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then what does it say in verse 14 of John chapter 1? This Word that is eternal God became flesh. And they said, we have seen his glory. He took on a true humanity. And when we think of the word flesh, it normally comes with negative connotations such as the, the works of the flesh. And you can think of Paul's list of the work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. And so the idea of flesh comes with a negative idea that of sinfulness and uh, the works of the flesh are, are works of sinfulness. But that's not what it's speaking of here. What we have to understand, yes, Jesus took on a true human nature without sinfulness. But when it speaks of a true human nature, he was truly man, as we're told later, like his brothers in every respect. He grew tired. You know, I I get tired every day after lunch. Two o'clock hits, and I have to focus as hard as I can to not fall asleep while I'm studying. Jesus grew tired. Jesus was thirsty. As he walked in long journeys, he had to stop because he was truly flesh and blood. He had real human emotions. He had a human soul. He had a human will. In every respect, he was made like his brother's. It's speaking of it. He took on flesh. He took on blood. Likewise partook of the same things. That is through birth. He experiences this. He experiences the weakness of the flesh in all respects except for one. What was it? Sin. So important that we understand the virgin birth. That he did not have an earthly father. He came through the seed of the woman, just as promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. You might think then, wait, hold on. We are born with a sinful nature. So if Jesus was truly human, why did he not have a sinful human nature? Because sinfulness is not an essential element of what it means to be human. How was Adam created? Adam was not created with a sinful nature. It's not essential to our humanity to be sinful. We inherit sin because of Adam's, and Adam's sin is imputed to all of his children which is all. That's why it's so important that we see that Christ came through Mary. 
So he takes on human flesh, flesh and blood, through normal means of, of birth through Mary, but he's without sin. He has the weaknesses of the flesh except for sin. But there's something else about this that is essential to our salvation. It says he partook of these things. Now we're about ready to have a fellowship meal. And you're invited to be a part of that fellowship meal. And if you go and stand in line, you're going to partake of what is there. No one here is forcing you to do that. It's voluntary that you partake of something. It's a voluntary action on your part to do that. When we see that he partook of it, it is speaking of his voluntary condescension. It means he took part, he joined with humanity. He did this willingly. It was not coerced by us that Christ took on flesh. And it's so important that we recognize this because it helps us to understand the nature of grace, doesn't it? That He would partake of flesh. Nothing forced Christ to become man. Nothing forced Him to go to the cross. He didn't owe anyone anything but rather what we see is that the Lord voluntarily did this. And he says it this way in such a familiar word, uh, verse is John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He did this out of love. He was a voluntary substitution He partook of flesh on behalf of a people willingly. I love how beautifully Isaiah 53 captures this. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, but like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, He opened not his mouth. You remember when Jesus was about to face the cross, he said, do you not think I I cannot call down 10,000 legions of angels? This whole entire human existence was a voluntary act on his part that he partook of it. Christ obligated Himself in His eternal covenant with the Father to accomplish salvation. And we see that what was behind this, the driving force, was this greater love that He speaks of, that no greater love can be that a man would lay down his life for his friends. That driving force was His love. Just as we see that it is in love that the Father sends the Son That's the antecedent to Christ taking on flesh and blood, is love. In love, the Father sends the Son. In love, the Son lays down His life. In love, the Son takes on flesh and blood. He partook of the same things that we have in the same way we have so that He could lay down His life, which He says was an act of what? Love. 
Boy, that is the most amazing news and comforting news is the love of God that is realized in the person of Christ. Because we fail horribly at loving one another. We've all experienced a lack of love. But what are we shown here? That the, the greatest of mysteries is that God takes on human flesh is an act of His, what? Love for the children. That means this, is that if you are in Christ sitting here this morning, you have an immutable love upon you that was set upon you in eternity and it cannot ever be broken. And the proof of that love is this, that He, the Son, Jesus, partook of our nature in the same way by taking on flesh and blood. If you ever begin to wonder about God's love for you, just remind yourself of this. Wait, the Son of God took on flesh and blood for me. He did it for the children. And if you are in Christ, you are the sons of glory that the Father is bringing to salvation. If you are in Christ, you are those whom Christ has sanctified, that Christ has set apart. If you ever doubt the love of God or you ever experiencing the crushing blows of life where we, we experience a failed love and a fallible love, just look to the infallible love of God that's realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to dwell more on this idea that he took on and shares in flesh and blood, that he did this voluntarily. But the text moves us to show us another aspect of the accomplishment. We've been told we've been sanctified. That means we're set apart. We're made holy. That he calls us brother. But it says this is that through this, he destroys the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus destroys death through death. Why does it have to be death, though? Why do we have death? Because of disobedience. The wages of sin is death. Death is the universal punishment for all. It is inescapable for all, without exception, are deserving of death and judgment. And all of us, unless the Lord should return before then, will experience death. We're told that we deserve it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're deserving of God's wrath. And so death is a result of sin, just as God promised in the garden. If you eat of the fruit thereof, you shall surely die. And so in order for salvation to be made possible from eternal death, in order for death itself to be vanquished, Jesus suffered death, suffered through death, and as a result, accomplished salvation. 
This is why the text tells us he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. This is a perplexing statement. What do you mean, or what does the text mean that the devil has power over death? A lot of answers to this. Where almost everyone agrees is it does not mean that Satan has a sovereign power over death itself. So what does it mean that he destroyed the devil, and what does it mean, what power did the devil have over death? Well, let's start with this, is that he destroyed the devil. That word destroyed can be, mean annihilated or abolished, and that has not happened. That's not the meaning here. It means actually to be rendered useless. It means to be disarmed. Yes, Satan is powerful. Yes, he deceives. Yes, he will accuse. Yes, he is like a roaring lion. But here's the point of it, is that he is destroyed in this, is he can no longer accuse you. He cannot judge you. He cannot affect you. If you are in Christ, Satan has been destroyed and you are protected from him. And this will be realized in its fullness when Christ returns, but it is a reality now. Think of the promises that Christ gives us. The devil cannot win against the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of Christ. Christ promises that. Satan may want to try that, but he can't. And what was promised in the garden? Go back to that verse of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent and crush the serpent himself. Christ does that on the cross. Satan himself then is a defeated foe. You see in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14, it says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities to put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now that, that phrase there, rulers and authorities, it's speaking of the demonic. It's speaking of that demonic, unseen world that Christ, on the cross, vanquished. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this, For whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And there's so many different verses we could go to show this in Scripture. In fact, we're just showing restraint by showing us those two. It is to picture this, though, is that in the cross, through the suffering and death of Christ, He defeated Satan. 
Now, the second question is this. How does the devil have power over death? Well, he has no power that's inherent to him. He's not sovereign. He doesn't rule in an absolute sense. He's called the prince of this world. But he has no authority other than what has been granted to him. This is why Luther said that Satan is actually God's Satan. And I know that's a, that's a perplexing, it almost sounds like a blasphemous statement, but actually there's a lot of comfort in what Luther was saying. He's saying this, is that Satan himself is a created being and has no power outside of God. He can't do anything outside of God's plan as if he's really truly working against God and God's just trying his hardest to keep him back. That's not how it works. It's not what it means. So what does it mean that he has power over death? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 for a second and see what this, this probably is referring to. And just setting it up while you're turning to Genesis 3, Eve is in conversation with the serpent, which, by the way, don't have conversations with the serpent. And Eve is saying, well, if I eat of that, or she adds to God's word, if I even look at it, I might die. I will experience death. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. You won't have death. What happens when she partakes of the fruit and then gives some to Adam, who was with her, by the way? And he partakes of it. What, what happens to the whole of human race? Death. Satan's realm is the realm of death. It's through his suggestion, through his lying, that death enters into the world. That's his realm. His realm is that of his realm is that of death. He also accuses. We see in Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. He's accusing constantly. He makes accusations against God's people. His realm is the realm of death, and he is accusing that so that others might experience that death, and that is an eternal death, a second death, as the Scripture oftentimes calls it. And so through Adam's sin, all of mankind inherited his sinful fallen nature, and thus all of mankind then inherited what? Death. Satan's power over death is because death belongs to this world. And we see and have seen many times over in John chapter 12, verse 31, that he is the prince of this world. That's his realm, is the realm of death. It's not that he has any power that is absolute over God. He is powerful, but he's still a creature. He's a created being. 
And God is still the creator. And we're told here that he has been disarmed. The death of Christ ushered in the death of death. It ushered in the death of Satan's power. Eternal life in Christ vanquishes the devil. He has no power over you. He will not prevail against the church because he is a destroyed enemy. And he can no longer blind the nations. And that is why we are given the great commandment to go, or the great commission, excuse me, to go unto all nations because he can no longer blind them. Not only does Jesus destroy the devil, but we see second, he destroys the fear of death. He destroys fear. Notice in verse 15 it says this, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, why did he take on flesh and blood? Why did he partake of that flesh and blood through birth so that he would destroy Satan? In verse 15, so that he would deliver us through, uh, that are in subject to fear of death. He delivers us from the fear of death. Death itself brings fear, does it not? And why does it bring fear? Because our, our nature is brought into dissolution of itself. Because in death, our soul is separated from our physical body. Now, I would say that if you went and pulled most people across the world and asked them why we have death, I don't think they would say it's a consequence of sin. I think they would just say it's this natural process because we all experience, we see it as a natural process. But actually, we ought to know this as Christians. The reason we fear death is because death itself is actually unnatural. What does it mean to be human? To have flesh and blood and a soul. And the separation of those two things is unnatural. Why people fear death is because it's this unknown thing that is actually not natural, but is unnatural. We were created in God's image. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is stamped upon our heart. We are given an immortal soul. Death is unnatural because it's a consequence of sin. Death is something unusual and unexplainable. It's a mystery. Yet it's universal and it's constant, isn't it? And the amazing thing is that we have to think about, because sin entered in the world, the moment we are conceived, we are actually working on what? Dying. We have a moment where we are conceived, and that's when life begins, right? From that moment on, we're working towards this unknown date that is only known to God. From the moment of conception, we are in that process now. 
And so this fear, it actually, we're told, it brings people into a slavery. In verse 15, it says, through fear of death, they were subject to lifelong slavery. And what does it mean to be in slavery? It's something that's involuntary. And you see this because people will do all they can do to avoid dying. And you think of your life and and that death is constantly there. Tom Schreiner, a commentator, says this, quote, For death casts a shadow over the entirety of life, hovering like a specter over every dimension of existence. Meaning death is just like hovering there over our whole lives, thinking about it. You think about the idea that we were told in quoting Psalm 8 that man is to take dominion. That's our creation mandate. We're told that in Psalm 8, that we're a promised dominion. But something keeps getting in the way. We keep dying. Death gets in the way of it. And actually what this text is telling us is that while we're called to take dominion, actually death seems to have dominion over us. It's a lifelong slavery, which will drive men to seek freedom and doing anything they can to prevent it. But here's the good news. Through suffering and death of the one that took on flesh and blood, through the same means of us, he actually, through death, the power of death and the fear of death, is conquered. When you look at the death of Christ, it seems to be anything but victorious, right? He's abandoned by his friends. His friend Judas trades him in to be crucified. He's spit upon. The nations are gathered against him. Pilate, an impotent, weak leader, hands him over, washes his hands of him. His friends desert him. And on the cross, the Father pours out punishment on him. He experiences death. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Jesus rose in victory over death. He rose over sin. He rose in victory over Satan. This is why Jesus says He is the resurrection and the life. This is why Jesus says, I give them life. Even as the Father has given life to me, I give them life. It's because He conquers death. He rose in victory over death. And He shares that victory with His siblings. He shares that with the children. Look, we don't need to fear death. Now, it's a natural thing to fear maybe how you're going to experience that. We all have our picture of how we want to die. But this means this, is that we don't have to fear when we die. Because we will not be judged. Judgment has taken place in the cross Canceling our debts. What does it mean that we no longer have a fear of death? It's not that we're not maybe afraid of how we're going to die or or being afraid of what that process is going to look like. It means this is that we don't have to have a fear of judgment because judgment has taken place because the children share in flesh and blood. He likewise partook 
of the same things that he might experience death on our behalf so that we don't have to experience death. He himself experienced the curse of death by becoming sin. He who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't have to have a fear of death. We don't have to fear death at all. It no longer controls us. We are not in fear of it. But let me ask you, do you sometimes have that fear? Is death a scepter hovering over your head? Does it give you anxiety? You have fear of it. We're told that you can be set free from that fear, that lifelong slavery that all of humanity is under can be set free from that fear. Jesus says this, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We don't have to have the fear of death any longer because we have been set free from it. Think of what we're told in Romans chapter 6 and verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, listen to the language, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But if you are in Christ Jesus, you have died in His crucifixion, and you have been raised in His resurrection. Because He is the one who gives eternal life, and in Him we have life. There is no fear of death. That's our hope. That is our victory that is bought in Christ, is that He has destroyed Satan who can no longer get a grasp of you. And because he has destroyed the fear of death itself. But if you're not in Christ, that fear looms over your head. That fear will haunt you. That fear is what keeps you up at night. But the good news is that in Christ, you can be set free from the fear of death and the bondage of Satan and sin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that in him he conquered death, he conquered Satan, and we have such great hope and assurance in him that we're not controlled by this fear of death, we're not controlled by a fear of Satan, for Christ is victorious over all and is our great king, our great mediator on our behalf. I pray that, Father, this assurance would flood our souls and give us comfort and peace and joy. We pray that, Father, that any anxieties that we would have or fear of these things, it would just be a reminder to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
where we see the great uh, love that you have given to your people in sending your Son out of love to redeem them who do not deserve it, but it's according to your grace. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the mercy that we receive in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.